Okay, everybody, it's a couple of minutes after, so <clears throat> we'll go ahead and get ready to jump in. Genesis 25. Genesis 25. I told y'all to not get too accustomed to going through a whole chapter in a night, so we had to split up Genesis 25. We could actually split up the rest of this two ways, but we'll just see how the Lord leads tonight. Um, there's a lot to cover here. I, it's interesting because I was looking through this again this week, thinking about it. And we spent so much of Genesis focused on Abraham, or focused on how God was working through Abraham, I should say. And we know the patriarchs is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? <clears throat> Tonight we get introduced to Jacob and Esau in the, the narrative of Genesis. But then you get to thinking again, I, I, I was thinking in my mind, you know, we spend so much time talking about Jacob and then Joseph in Genesis also. How much time do we really have to learn anything about Isaac? Not much. There's actually very little about Isaac. Um, but we still have Isaac in where we are tonight. Remembering where we've been at, <clears throat> Abraham had just died prior to our text tonight. Um, before he died, he sent his trusted servant north up to where he came from to find a bride for his son Isaac. We covered last week, Abraham dying and, and seeing God's providence in the events prior to that and the, the wife, Rebecca. As we looked at the events surrounding Abraham's death, we also looked at the events around Ishmael's children being born and Ishmael's death and his lineage and all that. Tonight, our focus goes back to Isaac and, um, and Rebecca and their twins, Jacob and Esau. The, the conclusion of this chapter is interesting because of we get introduced to Jacob and Esau we see a little bit of a very important event that happened and then we shift back to Isaac really till we get to Genesis 27 um, <clears throat> by the inclusion of this section at the end though it's significance it really is important to have that there before we get to Genesis 27 and the events that will happen there there's really, like I said earlier, two sections to break up the rest of Genesis 25 into. I think we'll cover both tonight, but we'll just see how the Lord leads. I must say before I get in, um, we're going to have to jump to Romans 9 also. It's just inevitable based on where we are tonight. But I don't know why this just came to me again. But every time I read about Jacob and Esau, about 10 years ago, I was in Kroger or I was somewhere in Nashville at a, at a Kroger or Publix or something, and I walk up, and for the first time in my whole life, I saw somebody that had a name tag. His name was Esau. But I've never in my life seen anybody who was named Esau. And, of course, me being how I am, I kind of took a picture of him and sent it to somebody. I said, I wonder if he knows. If you know what Romans 9 says, that was kind of the, the comment there. But the, the first section that we're going to look at is Isaac, Rebecca, <clears throat> and... The birth of the children, the birth of the boys. And the second we'll look at is the event that we're probably somewhat familiar with in regards to the birthright. So with all that said, let me read verses 19 through 26 first, because that's the first section of the concluding text. <clears throat> Starting in verse 19 of Genesis 25. <clears throat> now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac entreated 
Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And Yahweh was moved by his entreaty, so Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And her and her days to give birth were fulfilled, and behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out came forth red, all over like a hairy garment. And they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth which, with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Let's pray. Father God, we come to another extremely important text in your word tonight, as they all are. The impacts and the ramifications of the events we're reading tonight have influence and affected so much of human history but more than that they affect your providential plan and your decree so god open our eyes and our hearts to hear and understand what you would have us to see in this text tonight father we <clears throat> ask you be with those who could not be here with us tonight lord that you would watch over and protect them and god i pray that all that we do here tonight brings honor and glory to you that we know that in the midst of all of this, the focus is on you and your providence and your glory and your honor and the promise of that Messiah to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <coughs> I should apologize too. I think I realized, Diane told me too, that midway through the sermon on Sunday, my microphone went out and I was already struggling to talk, so I apologize the mic went out. She said she thought it went out okay though, so... Verse 19, <clears throat> now these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. These are the generations of, is oft repeated in Genesis specifically. It's, it's the formula that's used multiple times, and it usually serves two purposes. The first purpose is typically the genealogy, right? Just the genealogical data to know who came from who came from who. The second way that Genesis often that the Spirit uses Moses to use it in Genesis, is that it normally introduces us to a new portion of Scripture, or maybe a focus shifting from one group of people to another group of people. And we see that happening here, right? From Abraham, it kind of shifts to Isaac. God is always the primary focus, but the narrative shifts sometimes from person to person, humanly speaking. <coughs> the way it's laid out, though, all also serves as a contrast to Genesis 25, 12. Let's look at that again. When it's talking about the, Ish, the generations of Ishmael. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant woman, bore to Abraham. Whereas 19 simply says this is Abraham's son, Abraham is his father. Again, the focus on this is the promised son. This is the legitimate, legitimized son. This is the son to inherit the covenant promises. This kind of reminds us Ishmael is the son of the flesh. Isaac is the son of the promise. The true heir, if you will. Verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. 
Why do we bring this up again? Why is, I mean, we already knew this, right? We just studied it not too long ago of who she is and where she came from. Again, what we say last week, the week before, God is a God of details. He doesn't always give us all the details, right? But in regards to the historical narrative, the details are usually very, very clear that God gives us in his word. <clears throat> not that we need confirmation this is God's word, but this just helps solidify it, right? She's Isaac's cousin. She's from Abraham's people. But there's something else thrown in here that we didn't have in the narrative before, which is what? Isaac's age, right? Isaac is 40. Well, does that mean a hill of beans to us right now? Not really. Not yet. But it does when you look down at verse 20. We'll get there. Don't look there yet. Everybody, I shifted down. I should have told you. I don't look there yet. But when we get the, to verse 26... <clears throat> Now, I'll give you a little hint to it. Keep in, ages, keep in mind his age. Look at what happens next, verse 21. So verse 20, he was 40 when he took Rebekah to be his bride. Verse 21, and Isaac entreated Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and Yahweh was moved by his entreaty, so Rebekah, his wife, conceived. <coughs> you know how I tell y'all sometimes, there's a lot going on between those, those white spaces between this verse and that verse. There's a lot happening here. 19 years worth of happening here between two verses. Because by verse 26, she conceives and has a child, and he's 60. So he entreated the Lord. She conceived, so within nine months she had a child. So there's a, Now, that's not to say he wasn't crying out to the Lord multiple times in those 20 years. But the second part of this verse, when she conceived the twins, there's 20 years between that time frame. Now, there's a lot of reason I think that's important. Um, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but verse 21 tells us Isaac entreated the Lord. Some of y'all may have something different there. Prayed to the Lord, cried out to the Lord, something of that nature, right? What's that again? Pleaded, okay, I like that. <clears throat> and because of what? Why, why was he? Why did he need to do this? She was barren. See the similarities again, right? With Sarah. I mean, this again. Oh, I thought you had something. So, what does that mean to entreat? Now, y'all have some different words there, depending on your translation. Literally, to plead with, or supplicate, or, or cry out to, is what's going on there. Crying out. I looked at some other popular English translations. NASB and ESV both say pray. King James says entreat. New King James says pleaded. You may have anything different than any of those. The point I want to make there is this. I don't want to dismiss or diminish any prayer, okay? All of our prayer that we take to the Lord is important. But sometimes we pray with a different earnestness than we do at other times, right? And there's some things that we, I mean, it's like, pulling at us as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I think that's what we're seeing here. This entreatment, this, this, it's just so heavy on him to cry out to the Lord. Anyone want to wait till daddy's age? Yeah. It's, I put, it is a prayer, but a strongly pleading prayer. And the Lord moved, he responded, he answered. So, Remember what's going on here, though. The promise has been transmitted to Isaac. 
He has no children. Did Isaac in some way change the Lord's mind here? I mean, his wife's been barren for 20 years. <coughs> well, we know that God changes not. We see similar texts like this elsewhere in Scripture, right? And we think, well, hold on. I mean, it looks like that's what happened. Bill, did you have something? Oh, I thought you were about to say something. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I don't know. Because my voice still didn't quite recover, and I'm waiting on somebody else to say something. Um, Y'all have heard me say before, I think I said it last Sunday, when the Lord changes, when the Lord converts, when the Lord brings us <clears throat> into his presence, and he changes our will, he bends our will to conform to his will. When we pray, we pray, y'all often pray, Lord, if it be your will, that's what we see going on right here, right? His will is bent towards that which God had already planned and purposed, and Isaac is praying for that very thing that God has promised to come to pass. What do you? What's that now? Yeah. And so both of them are children of Isaac and Esau and Jacob are supernaturally born in that regard. Anyway, I think I Also note, as we've said, the parallels with Abraham and Sarah. What's the major difference here though? What did they what did Isaac and Rebecca not do that Abraham Sarah did do. Didn't try to fix it themselves, right? They didn't try to fix it themselves. Abraham, Sarah, you know, go into my concubine, Hagar, Ishmael. We we studied that a while ago. That's a good point, Diane. Y'all catch what she said there? Isaac grew up knowing the effect of what that wrought, right? Because he grew up with a twelve a brother that was twelve years older than him, Ishmael, and saw all the chaos that ensued from that. That's a good point. <clears throat> now, verse 22. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? Kind of oddly worded, is it not? So she went to inquire of the Lord. <clears throat> Before they were even born, there's conflict between them within the womb. I looked up that word. Um, my translation shows struggled. What's anybody else have there in verse 22? That the children struggled together within her. Crushing is a, a translation of the Hebrew word used there. Anybody else? Struggle. Yeah, so lit, the literal translation of the Hebrew word can be struggle, mistreat, oppress, crush, or even shatter. So what is she crying out about here? If it is so, why then am I this way? What is she even asking there? That's a weirdly worded question, is it not? What is she asking? If all is well. 
she never carried any children in her womb, first of all. Something didn't quite seem natural. She was probably talking to other ladies who had children that are telling her something different's going on with what's going on with you, right? This isn't normal of what's going on. Now, what did she not know at this point? Apparently. She didn't know she had twins in her, in her womb either, right? <clears throat> she didn't know that. Apparently. Pretty clearly we think that because what God tells her here in just a moment that she has two in there. I found this very interesting. Especially in Genesis, it's always interesting to see how Hebrew rabbis and scholars, how they interpret certain things in the Old Testament. So here's something interesting. <coughs> Some of the rabbis explain that this verb used there, this struggle, conflict, oppress, crush, really has the meaning of running or moving quickly. And so whenever she passed, I'm going to Rebecca, whenever Rebecca, I don't, I don't buy this, by the way, this is just something they think. Whenever she, Rebekah, passed by the doors of the Torah, the schools of Shem and Eber, Jacob moved convulsively in his efforts to come to birth. But whenever she passed by the gate of a pagan temple, Esau moved in his efforts to come to birth. That, 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 that's some of their traditionalism in, within the Jewish rabbinical schools. Um, but the idea or activity of crushing or oppressing each other serves as a symbol, right, of representing what's going to happen when they're born in their relationship. We're going to see a whole lot about this brotherly relationship as we go through the next couple of chapters of Scripture. There's a whole lot that happens between these two guys. She's questioning what's going on. If God, God, if you've done this, you've given this to me, you've, you've opened my womb, I've got a child at least in my womb, is there something wrong? What's going on? I mean, I'm sure it probably felt like it. She responds properly, though, doesn't she? What does she do? She goes to the Lord. She goes to the Lord. Something's not right. Something doesn't feel right. I don't think something's right. I'll take it to the Lord. Verse 23. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. You have twins in your womb, Rebecca. Two nations, two major people groups will come from these boys. And there will be continued animosity between these two people groups. He's also given a prophecy that upends tradition. The older will serve the younger. That's a conflict in just in any culture I've ever thought of in, in the world, in the history of the world, right? The older is always the primary beneficiary of everything in, in whatever culture you can really think of. I can't think of a different culture that says something other than that. <clears throat> it, it's a precursor for what's to come. God, before either had been born, had predetermined the older would serve the younger. They would be separated or divided from her body. What does that mean? Well, the easy answer is, well, she's going to give birth, so it's not going to be in her anymore, right? I think it's speaking not just of the birth, but of the future events to come, too. The clear prophecy here is the promised line would come through the younger child. The older will be those outside the promise, Esau, the eventual Edomites, Church, that name should ring a bell if you have some familiarity with the Old Testament even outside of Genesis because they are a constant thorn in the sides of the Hebrews in the Old Testament. <coughs> so 
Second Samuel, you can read about the conflict. First Kings, First Chronicles. And verse 24. And her days to give birth were fulfilled. And behold, there were twins in her womb. Not much of an exposition needed to that verse, right? She gave birth, twins. But again, the one thing I will point out here, the language used there is her days to give birth were fulfilled. That's providential language again there of at the time for her to get, the appointed time for her to give birth to these boys, the time for them to be born was the time decreed by God, and that's when she had the voice. Verse 25. <clears throat> and the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Born hairy and red. Some of y'all's translations might say red-headed or red-haired. The other word, the Hebrew word used there is not used a lot. It's also the word ruddy. So we know for sure he was born hairy. That's going to come up again when Isaac's a little bit older and can't see very well, right? If y'all know your Genesis here in another chapter or two. Possibly, I read one commentary that said this, possibly he had that, what's it called? Hyper, hyper trichosis. It's when people are born and they're just abnormally hairy hairy all over just it's very rare but you can read accounts of that out there possibly he was redheaded probably he was redheaded maybe maybe not but red in complexion for sure which would be odd even today right the jews have an olive skin tone actually my skin tone's pretty much well the same they're a little bit darker than i am because they're in the sun more than me but pretty similar to what my skin tone is the same word is used for red, admoni, is used of David's complexion, King David. 1 Samuel 16, 12. So he sent and brought him in. Remember, this is after they wanted to, all the big, strong, strapping boys. They said, no, this one over here. So he went, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. With beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And Yahweh said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. King David had the similar skin tone complexion. Not a common complexion among Old Testament Jews. It's pointed out for that reason. Some, some say his complexion and hairiness were the outward um, manifestation of what kind of person he would be and his characteristics. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, obviously. Yeah. So the ones that kind of lean on the, that their outward representations of what his character would be, and without trying to go too far in Genesis before we get there, they kind of point to extremely passionate, a wild type person, a tendency towards violence. As we're going to see pretty soon, those things are indicative of who Esau kind of is. Esau, <clears throat> the word Esau can mean hairy, but it may also have Con connection to the Hebrew word asa, which means to crush or squeeze. So again, we're coming back to that crush or squeeze thought process. Now, as I've already said a couple times, the fact that he's exceptionally hairy will come into play very importantly when we get to Genesis 27. Extremely important in Genesis 27. 
Genesis 26, uh, verse 26. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to him. So there's the connection, right, of the 60 years old there to the 40 years old when we started, 20 years. <clears throat> He's delivered holding the heel of his younger brother, or his older brother, I'm sorry. So the symbolism here is pretty obvious, right? I mean, the younger is holding on to the first, struggling as if not allowing the brother to get out before him. I mean, there's some, it's an indication of the conflict between them. It, it points to the future relationship between them. Jacob's name is, is, a, is, a, is the cognate verb of a noun, the noun heel. So his name literally means one who takes by the heel. They're, they didn't just, you know, throw a dart at a wall to come up with names back in those days. Those names really meant something pretty significant compared to a lot of them today. Of course, a lot of names today, they just take this name and that name and add them together and come up with some crazy names, but I'm not here to discuss the names of kids out there today. I heard one the other day at work, and I was like, what did you say his name was? Anyway, Hosea 12.3. Didn't name until after they were born, I, guess. I would guess not, John. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, I never thought about that, but yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, I know that that's probably not just them. I mean, I know Native Americans were big about that too, right? They would look for symbols or signs in nature or something. That's how they have all these nature-related type names or something they may have seen when the child was born. They also usually don't know if it's a boy or girl. That's a good point, too. <laughs> Some of the Native American tribes delayed them. They gave them a name at birth and changed it again at 12 or 13 yeah. when, it, when they had demonstrated some kind of character. That's true. Or added to that name. I've heard of that, too. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> they all ended up being named Jerk, though. Yeah. He looked at you, Malia. I think your name may have got changed if you'd In Hosea twelve three, the prophet says this In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he wrestled with God. Speaking of Jacob. Uh Isaac was sixty, as we said. Now I gotta pause there for a minute. Before we move to the next section, we've got to take a glance at Romans nine. We're, we're compelled by the scripture itself to do so. I shared with y'all last week, <clears throat> Romans 9 is almost like an exposition by the Apostle Paul of Genesis 25. At the end of Romans 8, we know that he lays out that, that beautiful language <clears throat> of how God's salvation is played out and how God's people are saved. <clears throat> we know from verse 28 in Romans 8, you know, when he goes into the whole, <clears throat> because those who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he'd be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. <clears throat> Just as I shared with you all Sunday, that does not sit well with human concepts of salvation. It just doesn't. As I've heard Stephen Lawson say, Scripture's clear. It's easy to understand. It's just hard for man to swallow it. So Paul, when he gets to Romans 9, 
as Jesus often did, he didn't back down from what he just stated. He doubled down on it and went further into explaining what he's saying there. And he uses Jacob and Esau as an example of how God does what he does and why he does it. So, how God's elective decree works, Jacob and Esau are a picture of that. He he uses it to show God's elective work. Before they were born, God declares who was chosen. Jacob, covenant, not for any human merit. So let's, let, let's go to this, this language, knowing this truth goes against what man wants to hear. Romans 9, verses 6 through 24. <clears throat> but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed, but through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Paul understands the pushback on this doctrine. Paul's response, may it never be. No, no, never. The strongest negative in the Hebrew, in the Greek language, I'm sorry. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Speaking of God, for who resists his will? God's will. Verse 20, on the contrary, Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the motor, why did you make me this way? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay? to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, enduring with, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. That's heavy text. That's Paul responding to. He knows what the human response will be to this teaching. And that response has not changed in 2,000 years. But our text is in Genesis 25. I just had to take us there to point out Paul comes back to the very text we're in tonight to explain and point to the doctrine of election. Now, to the concluding section. I know it may have made y'all's head spin a little bit. We can talk about it afterwards if we want to, but we got some other stuff to plow through right now. Verse 27 through 34, the end of this chapter. 
and the boys grew up. A lot of verses, a lot of time passed between the white space of verse 26 and 27 also, right? The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had appetite for hunted game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob had cooked stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. Then Esau said to Jacob, Please give me a swallow from the red stuff, this red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. A lot happening right there in those verses. But quite honestly, not a deep exposition needed on those verses. It's pretty self-explanatory what's going on, but we'll walk through. There's some important points to pull out of it, if nothing else. We see the prophecy begin to come to fruition, and we also see disregard for the birthright from Esau. What we also see here is that Jacob isn't the upright person we would want to put on a pedestal that we think of when we think about Jacob early on, right? This is some pretty... And he doesn't stop here. He goes even further later on, right? What else do we see about these two boys early on? Billy, you want to say what you've said about these two boys? You know, you're not ready to say that yet? Not about the boys. Well, God told her two nations, one served the altar, right? Yep. How much did she talk about that? It is. And if she did talk about it, and she loved Jacob, but it doesn't really say anything about what she thought about Esau, well, do you think she just was feeding it all to Jacob and Esau? You know, you're going you're gonna to rule over your brother one day. You're going to be the, because the other thing that comes into the equation there that what Billy's bringing up, <clears throat> that's been a popular debate for centuries or millennia maybe, is did Jacob purposely prepare this stew, knowing his brother was going to come in from the field starving and want it? It was all kind of a trap set. He was deceitful. He was very. He got it from his mom. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob was a mama. That's what I was waiting on right there. Now, man's man was not like Jacob. No. I, don't, I didn't like him. I've taught on this before. And I would go for Esau, man to man. Yeah. But not Jacob because of the way he was. Yep. But yet God loved Jacob. Yeah. But look at yourself, turn to yourself and say, why does God even love me? So, you know, I'd be kind of into that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, I knew Billy would, would get to that point of Jacob was, he's not a very likable character, especially early on. From a man's perspective, probably even from, probably from a woman's perspective too, Esau is the more, maybe y'all might not have liked how hairy he was, but Esau is the more, he's the more manly type 
person, right? By far. He's the one that goes out and hunts. He's outdoors when he's a provider. He's, he's doing all this stuff. Jacob's hanging back in the tent making soup with mom. Yeah. yeah. The, we don't, we don't, there's a, a lot of warts and thorns and things that don't draw us to Jacob. I thought this labor in scripture, I mean, I, I, you can speculate on the purpose of it being that way. Yeah. Well, you got to look at anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. They always think they're up to something. They're always plotting something and planning something. And they got some examples they can go find. We do see extreme distinctives. We've talked about that between the two brothers, right? Extreme, not just physical distinctives, but character, all kinds of things. I simply put Esau was a hunter and outdoorsman. A man's man, I put Jacob was a homebody and a mama's boy. The Bible faults Esau for despising his birthright. That's the only sin that's mentioned in this whole thing. Right here it is. Yeah, we're going to go there in just a second. <laughs> she, she, she said I figured. <laughs> but that's the only sin that it identifies as sin. That's what I'm saying. Verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he had an appetite for hunted game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. I read that um, we've translated or transliterated that in the English, but not all that verbiage is in there. That in the original Hebrew, it makes 28 look even more like the main reason Isaac loved Esau is because he loved wild game and Esau provided it. It wasn't as much about Isaac as who he was as what Isaac did. He loved him for the kind of person he was versus the person he was. In the original Hebrew, it's kind of the sentence structure looks a little bit different. <clears throat> and but Rebecca loved Jacob there's no additives to why she loved Jacob at all there right it's just Rebecca loved Jacob Isaac inclined to Esau Rebecca to Jacob now we all know that always causes problems in a family if that happens right if one parent leans more towards one child one leans towards another one I guess Billy, they had three, so they just one of them just gets kind of cashed off to the side. <laughs> you get more than two. That kind of makes you think maybe she didn't tell Isaac what God told her. I mean, in 23, it says the Lord said to her, so. That's an interesting question, too, John. I wonder how much she talked about it. Yeah. I don't know. Well, there's fault in Isaac, too. I mean, even, even at the very end, what he wanted, yes. he saw was. Or me. Yep. I mean, I was, what, yeah, yeah. Um, this split was going to have consequences later, massive consequences later. Verse 29, and Jacob had cooked stew. Again, we can speculate that he was just setting a trap. It's possible. And Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. He was at home cooking. Esau's out doing guy stuff. Right? He comes in, hungry, tired, thirsty, smells something cooking. Give me that. Esau's famished. I kind of looked at that a little bit. 
it says on the verge of faint. Some of y'all's texts might actually say fainting. I looked at one English translation. It does say faint or fainting or about to faint or something. But it means extremely hungry, extremely exhausted. In the Hebrew, the word carries the idea of extreme weariness from physical exertion. He wasn't just going and sitting in a tree stand all day, right? I mean, he was, he was putting feet to the ground, a lot of physical activity to do what he'd been doing all day long. Verse 30. Then Esau said to Jacob, please give me a swallow from the red stuff, this red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. <coughs> now, it does, Esau, it looks like he's asking for the stew, but it's really more of an imperative statement, right? Some of y'all's translation probably say, please give me. But you probably don't have a question mark in that verse either, though. Give it to me. Literally, the literal way that sentence is constructed in the original language is, let me greedily swallow. This phrase isn't used anywhere else in Scripture. Nowhere else in Scripture do you find this phrase. So you got to go to um, <clears throat> extra-biblical sources in the Hebrew, and what you kind of come to is an idea of gulping it down. Like, have you ever sat down somewhere and you just can't stand to watch the way somebody's eating i mean that's kind of what as he's that at that stage or if you've ever seen a, a movie or something or or recognition of somebody who is starving and when they finally get something to eat how they i mean fingers and just digging into everything dipping their finger yeah oh the, the extra-biblical writings use this comment almost exclusively when it's talking about feeding livestock. Marty can probably tell you when his pigs eat, it's not really something fun to watch. It's kind of the same language used here. Yeah, don't get in the way either. You'll lose something. <clears throat> Notice he repeats this red stuff. So he's really saying, I want it and I want it now red stuff and it says he's called Edom so what's the connection there he, he gains the name Edom literally means the red stuff all right it's that simple the red stuff Molly and I when we were at the Dead Sea the mountains those are the Edom mountains Edomite mountains I've y'all seen pictures of them a couple times on the welcome screen on the other side of the Dead Sea that's the Edom mountains and they're called that not just because of who occupied the area but the way the sun is there and the way it reflects off the Dead Sea those mountains are red the Edom mountains Verse 31. But Jacob said, first tell me your birthright. That leads you to think there's some kind of a plan here to begin with, right? That's a good point, Diane. I thought that too. To catch what she said, maybe it happened before. Maybe it happened often. This is the this is the advantage I have. Yep. If you're gonna if we're using the phraseology of setting a trap, you set a trap where you know you're gonna probably catch something, right? So it, it probably had happened before. <clears throat> so he takes advantage of the situation either way. Again, I, you just kind of you keep getting drawn back to it. Man, Jacob's not somebody that I really like, care about reading about a whole lot, is he? I mean, just really, especially early on. But as we're going to go through Genesis, you're going to see what is... Jacob does a lot of other things that we can't really jive with we don't really like a lot 
he often takes matters into his own hands or actually pushes somebody out front to take to deal with it. But what is much of his life spent doing? God breaking him down. Quite literally, physically, one time specifically, breaking him down to bring him to that point of where he's to be. He loved him. Birthright here is extremely important, especially in that part of the world and time. Firstborn received double portion of the inheritance. That was competent in ancient laws outside of uh, God's law. Present in God's law as well, though. Deuteronomy 21, 17. But he shall recognize the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first of his vigor. The legal judgment for the firstborn belongs to him. Also means he was giving up the headship of the family once Isaac died. He would be the leader of the family if he agreed to it. Verse 32 was his response. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what you stand is a birthright to me. The first thing that comes to my mind here, right, wrong, or indifferent, he must not have had a good day hunting that day. He didn't have anything to bring back to to eat. There's no love lost between these two boys. No, not at all. I think Esau's tone of voice and attitude, he more or less said give it to him. I do too. And probably bullied him his whole life. I mean, me and my brother, you know, we loved each other, but we sure didn't just give in. <laughs> yeah. Stuff, you know, anyway. So I think that's kind of the tone set here. Yeah, I do too. And he realizes uh, Jacob's not going to just hand it over. Mm-hmm. So what what overrules his stomach overrules his head here. Yeah. Just for the moment. I think it says something. I think in the moment, yes, but I think it also says something about Esau's overall character, right? If he's some of the things, I wrote some things down here of what I'm thinking of when I think about this right here. So, short-sighted. He's fixated on what can be seen. Careless, indifferent, materialistic. Living for immediate gratification. I mean, that's the world we live in today, right? Everything's immediate gratification. Physical desires take precedent. Now, I say all that, I'm not excusing Jacob here. We, we beat up on him quite a bit, too. This is no excuse for Jacob, the fact that Esau is the way he is. The writer of Hebrews, Diane referenced Hebrews, expresses this about Esau. Now, before I read this verse, I want to say this about the birthright. One more thing. (coughs) What did Isaac own? When Abraham died, what did he pass down to Isaac land-wise that Isaac owned? A field with a burial plot. That's it. The field at Machpelah, where Abraham and Sarah is buried. That's all he owned. Owned a lot of cattle, owned a lot of servants and all this stuff. Maybe inheritance for Esau at this point was like, I don't, what am I inheriting? That's a discussion we could have later on. Here's what Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says about Esau. Hebrews 12, 16. That also there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau. <clears throat> who sold his own birthright for a single meal. You catch what the writer said? 
no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau. Now, we don't see all that in this text yet, right? But this is writing about the kind of person Esau was. Esau seems to accept Jacob's terms, but Jacob is shrewd, is he not? He's shrewd, and he presses them to swear an oath to solidify it. Verse 33, and Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. It's not just enough for you to say, yeah, whatever, just give me the face. He said, no, you're swearing to me. Let's write this in blood, per se. What's the oath do? It binds him to the promise. It binds him to the promise, especially in that culture in that time. An oath might not mean much to people today. It did then. I wish it meant more to people today. That comes back to the point somebody brought up earlier about how much did Isaac know about everything that was going on? There's also a blessing involved in that incident. a blessing involved in that incident too, yeah. So those are two different things. Verse 34. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. At the end of this passage, there's this, this interesting way the language and the sentence structure is out there. This, these verbs that are separated by and. This, and, this, and, this, and, this. He ate, and he drank, and he rose, and he went, and he despised. They're held together by these ands. An English teacher today may not like that too much, but there's a purpose in it. Stringing them together like that is to draw our attention to the to being deliberate about the actions. That it wasn't not, it was, I did this and I did that. You probably talked to people like that before, right? I saw them do this and then they did that and then they did that. It's kind of the thought process of this, the deliberateness of the actions he's doing. And the last one, he deliberately and willfully despised his birthright. Now, in your translation, I found this extremely interesting. Maybe you don't, you know, sometimes I bring something up, I'm like, you know, being a theological nerd and a history nerd, things jump out at me, and I'm like, that is kind of interesting. So maybe you won't think this is as interesting as I do. Does anybody, the very last sentence of that verse 34 in your translation, thus Esau despised his birthright. Y'all, some of y'all probably have something different for despised there. But does anybody have a translation? understanding, I think everybody's reading an English translation. Does anybody have a translation that does not have his birthright? That just says Esau despised birthright or despised the birthright? It's in italics in in Diane's Bible. Anybody else have it in italics there? Yours does too? So what do we know when we see a word in scripture in italics? What's that, Diane? It's inserted. Usually the insertion is, is to just help the sentence structure flow better because translating from Hebrew or Greek to English doesn't always flow right where we can read it right. <clears throat> it's important, though, that it's not in the original text. Esau despised his birthright. He's already sold it. It's not his birthright anymore. He despised the birthright. The birthright had been sold. 
It had been given up and given over. That's the way the Hebrews understood this, that it was gone. As we close, most, if not all, of us would naturally be drawn to Esau. And God's divine choice isn't like man's choice. God doesn't view as we view. God doesn't look at what we look at. First Samuel 16, 7, But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. <clears throat> For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. But we also read that God, before they had done anything, he wasn't looking at their heart as, as to who he chose for the covenant. He was looking at it in regards to the kingship and that kind of thing. But even then, as I said Sunday, God doesn't look through the tunnel of time and say, this person's going to do this, so I'm going to go back and decree this because that would make the person sovereign, not God. And at the moment, even if it's a nanosecond, that God didn't know something. Before we close, we've already read what the writer of Hebrews said about Esau. What does the writer of Hebrews say about Jacob? Hebrews 11, 9. Let me read verse 8 first. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. The writer of Hebrews points to him being a fellow heir of the same promise of the covenant people, of the line of which Jesus would come through. You know what the next verse says there? This kind of blows the doors off all this we've looked at in regards to Lot and some of this in Esau. Of They were looking at short-sightedness and what they could see and what they could grasp and what materialistic was there in front of them. The next verse after what I just read to you. <clears throat> for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Looking at what God was promising. Jacob has to learn some very, very hard lessons, and we're going to read about all of them, Lord willing, as we continue through Genesis. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Looking at scriptures, we're redeeming the time, as we've read about elsewhere, that we're, we're seeking your face, we're looking at what you would have us to see, we're understanding a bit more of who you are. God, we're so grateful that we have it. We're grateful that we have the Spirit who indwells and enriches, guides and directs us, Lord. Let us heed his direction. Father, again, we're, we're grateful that you don't see the way that we do. Our vision is blurry and short-sighted and way too self-focused. God, let us trust you more, love you more, seek you more. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, camera off, any other questions?